before we look at this passage, we're going to look at kind of two comparisons between the way that people respond to the gospel. And this is what always, it surprises me, and, it, and it's true, it was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. We can sit in a room, or we can hear something, or we can be exposed to the truth of what God is doing, and one person can react one way, and somebody can react the opposite, even though they heard the exact same message. You know what I'm talking about? And you see that throughout the book of Acts. The same group of people hearing the same message, and the response is completely opposite. One loves passionately, one reacts with hate and resistance. That's what happens, and it, it's true for the way that God has worked throughout centuries. When we're presented with the truth of what God is doing, we go one of two extremes. We can hear the same message, and that's why sometimes it's so shocking. It's like, did you just experience that? Did you just hear that? Isn't, it, isn't that amazing? And someone's like, well, I didn't really get anything out of that. You know, that kind of a feeling, that's, that's what we have. And it's almost similar to, to when, you, if you compare, there's two rich guys that are highlighted in the Gospels. One we don't know his name, the other one we do. The one we don't know his name, we just call him the rich young ruler. That's, what, that's the name we've given him. And then the other guy is Zacchaeus, which we've all heard of Zacchaeus. And the reason we know of Zacchaeus is because he's a short guy, which misses the whole point of his story. But the comparison of those two people, they encountered the same Jesus, yet their, their response was polar opposite. The rich man who came to Jesus to justify himself, and Jesus basically pointed out, hey, you got it all together. You've obeyed the law. You're really religious. Good job. But you're missing one main thing. Money is your idol. Unless you let that thing die, you cannot follow me. And what did it say? He walked away sad. And then he encounters Zacchaeus, which we know money was Zacchaeus's idol because he was a tax collector. And Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. And what's his response? He's going to sell his possessions and give his money to the poor. And he's going to pay everybody he's ripped off. He's going to pay him four times what he stole from them. How is it the same Jesus encounters two rich guys and they react two different ways? That's the tension we have to come to grips with today in our lives. Do we have a love or a hate relationship with the gospel? Now, before I jump into this, I realize, because it's really good when you're, you preach every Sunday and then you don't preach, because sometimes you are aware of things that maybe you're not aware of when you're preaching. Uh, John did a great job last week, but I know one of the, we use a term, and if you've been in church, you know what this term is, but we use the term the gospel over and over and over again. And sometimes we either, we assume everybody knows what the gospel is, and everybody, or everybody has an understanding, but maybe we need to just, I want to just clarify, what is the gospel? When we say the gospel, it's in its simplified form, we sang it in that song called oh, Praise the Name, the third song in. That is the gospel. It is that the Father sent the Son to live perfectly as the perfect example of humanity, of what, what life is supposed to look like is in Jesus. He sent Jesus to die sacrificially, so he, what, he took our place because of our sin and took our debt on himself so we could be free. And then he could rise, what, victoriously because he had no sin, so death couldn't hold him. And because of that, you and I have power over death, power over sin, and we are guaranteed life eternal with God. And the beauty of all the gospel is that it doesn't stop with us. The gospel's not a story for us, it's a story through us, which means here's the bad news of the good news. The bad news is when you hear the gospel and you experience the gospel, you're accountable for the gospel, which means you can't be quiet. You can't keep it to yourself. You have to share it. You have to live your life out in a way that people know who Jesus is because what he's done in your life, and you can't contain that any longer, and so you live that way in your job, in your neighborhood, in your family. That's the gospel. I'm a little passionate this morning. And I've convinced, I know that we are a sleeping army, that God's calling us to do something more. It's not to work harder, hear me. 
It's to be what God's called us to be. We are here 2,000 years after this explosion in human history because a group of people believed the gospel, responded, and it shaped every aspect of their lives. That's why we're here today. And every one of us has a debt that we owe them for living the way that they live. There are people who will live decades, if not centuries, after us that hopefully will have a debt they owe us. Because what did we do? We lived out the truth of the gospel. We couldn't be quiet. We gave all of ourselves to the gospel. So with that understanding, I just preached my message. Oh, we can kind of wrap up and go home. You're like, good, I can get home early today. No, sorry. Let's get to the passage. Just warming up. Okay, so verses, I'm going to read a good chunk here. 23 verses, 1 through 23. So listen, there's two different scenarios unfolded here, and you'll pick up the comparison. We'll talk about the difference between the two. So verse 1 of chapter 14 Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a while, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. They sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentile and Jews, Uh, With the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was like the chief speaker. And the priest uh, of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from those, uh, these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered him, he rose up and entered the city. Remember, he's going back to the city where they just tried to kill him. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Lyconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many uh, tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Do you see the difference between the two responses? One says, we're going to kill them. They can't be sharing this. We're going to kill them. The others, through a miracle and the sharing of the gospel, what do they want to do? They want to sacrifice to them. They want to worship Paul and Barnabas like they're gods. What in the world is going on? What is the difference between these two? 
What I want to look at this morning is there's really, there's two lenses that are being used here to look at the gospel. The first one is in the first part of the passage here, and that's the Iconium lens. This is the lens that the Jews and the Gentiles both were starting to look at the gospel through that I think sometimes you and I have to realize we have that same lens that we look at the gospel in our life. And so instead of the gospel being good news, it actually becomes bad news. And before I go into this, one of the things to be aware of, this is what I've been struck as I've gone through the book of Acts so many times, but wouldn't you and I, you and I understand that the, probably 95% of the resistance to the gospel comes from who? The religious leaders, religious people. It's not from the Romans. In fact, the Romans are late to the party. The Romans, remember the Romans crucified Jesus. Why? Because the Jews said they should. That's who, that's who started it going. So it's religious people who have this established religion that are the most resistant to the gospel. That scares me. I came to know Jesus when I was six years old. That means that there's a good chance that I'm more resistant to the gospel than my neighbor who doesn't even know Jesus yet. Just a side note. Just think about that. So three things. These are the haters of the gospel. This is the lens that is used to look at the gospel. The first one is, look at verse 2. The gospel is a threat. The gospel is not good news. It becomes as a threat. It says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So here's a religious group of people who are committed to tradition, the law, routine, and the gospel shows up and they're like, uh-oh, you've upset the apple cart. Things can't stay the same way that they would, and we, we don't like that. Things, we don't want things to change. We want them to stay the same, and that's why when the gospel shows up in our life, when Jesus shows up in our life, sometimes he's a threat to the way we live our lives because he wants us to live a different way. And if you and I understand that, that means that there are times, and here's the good news about the bad news. The bad news is that we have to change. The good news is it's a change for the better. When the gospel shows up in our life, it always offers something better than what we're living, which we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But think about this. Ask yourself this question today. What might need to be absent for Jesus to be present in my life? See, this group of people were threatened by the gospel because they didn't want to give up the lifestyle that they were living. They didn't want to give up what they were doing. And the gospel shows up, the truth of Jesus' death and his resurrection, and the power of God shows up, and they're like, wait a second, even though that looks really good, that means I'm going to not be able to live the same life that I've lived. Something's going to have to give way, and I don't want it to give way. My tradition, my routine, whatever it is. Anybody ever had kids? Did they adjust your life at all? Huge. In fact, when you know, when Kim and I were married and we were planning on having kids, we, we were planners, so we wanted to plan, and so we didn't have, neither Courtney or Jordan came by a surprise. They came on purpose, and we planned for that. In fact, when we knew that we wanted to have kids, we made some really important decisions about our lifestyle because we knew to allow us to have kids meant that things had to change. Kim had graciously, even though she was making way more money than me at the time, she had graciously said, I'll, I'll stop working and I'll stay at home with the kids until they're five years old. I said, okay. Well, I knew that we're going down to one income and I wasn't making a whole lot of money. We're living in an apartment. We had two cars, so one of those cars had to go. In fact, both of the cars went. And we bought my dad's, my parents' car for like nothing. And so we went from two cars to one car, from two incomes to one income. That slightly changes your lifestyle, doesn't it? I can't tell you how many times Kim dropped me off at work and then I had to wait for her to pick me up. Or we would play, you know, juggling who gets the car and if she has the baby and all those kinds of things. Life changed forever. But I never, ever regret ever giving up an extra car or extra income 
to have Courtney, which by the way, just side note, she's not here, she's up in Oregon. Today's Courtney's 23rd birthday. So if you know her, you can text her and say happy birthday. But I never regret making the decisions to adjust. Why? Because when Courtney came into the world, she didn't come as a threat. She came as a gift. And I would, I would change my life to make room for my kids. The same thing is true of the gospel. When the gospel shows up and you and I experience the joy of salvation, that means our life changes. Why? Because my life's not about me anymore. It's about other people. And in fact, the fact that I receive this, they need to receive it too. Therefore, I start to live differently. So when you and I become haters of the gospel, the gospel is a threat. It's bad news instead of good news. Second thing, look at verse four. If we're haters of the gospel, we have that Iconian lens. The gospel is competition. It says in verse four, but the city... The people of the city were divided, some sided with Jews and other with the apostles. So what's going on here is now they're realizing, okay, these apostles are doing miracles, they're preaching the good news, they're talking about this guy Jesus, which we killed, and now what's happening is we're losing our control. Now there's this competition because that's the, same, that's the same reason that when Jesus was walking the planet, the religious leaders were so angry at Jesus. Why? Because he was a threat to their power base. They were losing control. They liked to be around people that they can control. They liked to be around people who were like them. And suddenly Jesus shows up and he messes up everything. Now think about that. Does the gospel or the truth of the gospel cause you to lose power and influence of the people around you in your life? And you're like, well, I don't try to control people. No, we don't try to control people maybe like the Jewish leaders did. But you know the way that we try to control people? Is that we like to surround ourselves with people who have the same sinful tendencies we do so that we don't feel so bad about ourselves. We do. And what happens is when we live our lives that way, what ends up happening is we have, we have this shared acceptable level of sinfulness in our life. Why? Because if I'm around other people who are doing it, I don't feel so bad. Very rarely do we invite somebody into our circle who is not struggling with that sin. Why? Because we will feel this conviction. Why? Because they're not doing what we're doing. We do it all the time. And it's, a, and, it's, and it's really what it is, it's, a, it's an, a subconscious way of controlling our environment so we feel okay about ourselves so that we don't have to change. If the religious leaders could control people, they would never have to change. They could just keep status quo. And sometimes we do that. We, we want to surround ourselves with people who, if, even if sometimes unintentionally, maybe even intentionally, somebody starts to advance in a certain area, and we want to keep them just like us, so we'll sabotage them. So I, I watch this. This happens quite frequently in, amongst the staff. Staff's going, what is he going to talk about? So our staff has a lot of different interests in food and diet and all kinds of stuff. And so these diets come and go amongst the staff and physical activity, all these things. And so people get on a bandwagon. And it's always funny because when one or two people are like really strict on what they're eating, they can only eat certain things, they're on a certain diet to be healthy, one or two other staff members at lunchtime will walk out and say, hey, how about this for lunch? Which they know is the very thing the other person can't have. Not mentioning any names among staff members, but some really make very convincing arguments about why people shouldn't eat that healthy food and they should come join them in eating the unhealthy food. In fact, I watched it last week. I had to go in for a medical checkup that required me to fast, and somebody came to my door and said, ooh, how about some fries? I'm like, I can't. But Oh, but they won't know. Yes, they will. Medical procedure will re reveal I've had fries, right? Why do we do that? 
because we want to feel okay about what we're doing. And if we know we're not supposed to eat certain foods, if we get somebody else to eat certain foods with us, and hey, I don't feel so bad. See, what happens when somebody gets on fire for the gospel and for Jesus in their lives? There's a part of us that wants to say, hey, pipe down. Don't be so passionate. Don't be so radical. Just be okay. Because your passion's making me feel uncomfortable with my status quo. That's what was going on here. They didn't, they didn't want to change. They're like, we need to keep this down. So the gospel's a threat. The gospel's competition. The third thing, when we're haters of the gospel, is that the gospel's actually dangerous. Verses 5 and 6, it says, When an attempt was made by both Gentile and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and, and Derby, the cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And so what could be so bad that someone is telling and preaching that they actually want to kill them? That the gospel is, is dangerous? When it comes to following Jesus and surrendering to the gospel, where are you pushing back the strongest in your life? Because most of us are not wholesale pushing back on the gospel. It's one or two areas. I don't want to give this up. I want to hang on to that. And so what happens is the gospel becomes very dangerous to the very things that we hang on to. And it was about a year ago we went through a series and talked about idols. Idols die hard. And we hang on to them. And we're always good at finding the idols that everybody else has, but not seeing the idols that are in our lives. We identify things like, for example, one of the easy idols that we point at is money. Money's an idol in our culture. Why? Because we have this idea, the more money you have, the happier you'll be. So you work harder for money just to find out the more money you have, you're no more happy than you were. In fact, you're probably more depressed because now you have more to juggle and more to deal with and you have more to lose. But you know, there's other things that we don't see as idols. And please hear me. This is not to step on anyone's toes. But this is one of the things that we have to be careful of. And this is, I believe, one of the reasons in the Gospels Jesus said this many times. We have to be careful that a good thing to you doesn't become an ultimate thing. That's what an idol is. And you know what a good thing in the church is that becomes an ultimate thing? Family. Like, wait a second. My family's everything. Do you know your family's not supposed to be everything? Jesus is supposed to be everything. Now, does that mean we sacrifice our family on the altar of ministry? No. Do you sacrifice your family for the sake of Jesus? Yes. What's the difference? The difference is there are times when we use our families, our commitment to family, to say no to things that we know Jesus is saying yes to in our lives. Oh, I've got to take care of my family. Did you read Jesus? That's one of the things that made people mad. Like, hey, your family's knocking at the door, and he's all, who is my family? My family's here. My family's what? It's the one who, what, does the will of the Father. That's my family. The one who's following, the ones who are following, that's my family. It's getting really quiet in here. I know I'm stepping on toes. But honestly, in America today, the, the family, we have to be careful, has become the Christianized idol. Now, it doesn't mean that you sacrifice your kids or your family, but be careful that you don't use them as an excuse to say no to things that you know God's calling you to say yes to. Because the worst thing possible is to say, hey, I, I valued my family. And Jesus says, that's great. You could have valued your family, but you could have made me the priority of your life. I'll tell you one thing. When you passionately follow Jesus, your kids will see a better example of what's most important than if you dote over them and they make you let them drive your life. Sorry, I'll step back. There is a balance. How about a couple other ones that we don't necessarily see as an idol? Do you know what another idol is? Comfort. It is. 
I'm guilty of this one. I don't want, I don't want my comfort to be sacrificed. I, I like living a comfortable life. I like living in Simi Valley. We're built on comfort, right? We are. I mean, it's crazy. You know one of the things that's the worst thing for me? This. This is all about convenience and comfort. Somebody's texting me right now. It's the staff. That's why it's on silent. I'll have to read it later. I won't call anybody out who's texting right now, but anyway. But I'll tell you, you know what this has on here? This has a little app that controls my thermostat at home. This is why. I'll just tell you. Here's it. You know, because when I'm sitting downstairs and it gets a little too warm or a little too cold, I don't want to go upstairs to adjust the thermostat. I'll just click my app here and I'll adjust it on the couch. Anybody relate? What happens when Jesus starts pushing in on your comfort? Because there's always a cost to comfort. It could be money. It could be time. But a lot of times, our schedule becomes our comfort and our routine and our rhythm. And so when something invades our schedule and says, I'm going to take up time away from these other things that you think are so important, we're like, oh, no, 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 no. No, you're going to mess with my comfort. Following Jesus is uncomfortable. I mean, read, so far we got to chapter 14. There's 14 more chapters after this. The whole theme of the book of Acts is uncomfortable. <laughs> Paul, he's literally to the point of almost dying. And then what does he do? He gets back up and he walks right back into the same city. He wasn't worried about his comfort. The outcome for the haters is in verse 19, they tried to kill Paul to stop the gospel. If you and I live through that lens, eventually what push will come to shove and you and I will not just in one or two areas of our life push back on the gospel, we will push back on the whole thing because eventually it will take over our lives. That's the bad news. Ready for good news? All right, (laughs) please move on. So three things that are lovers of the gospel. This is the Lyconian lens. This is a different, this is the same message, different group of people. How did they respond? First one is this, the gospel is actually true. We believe it's true. Verses 9 and 10 says, He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said to this man who was crippled, Stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began to walk. Why did Paul look at him, and what was going on? This man had what? Faith. He had heard about something happening, and when Paul starts preaching and starts speaking to him, he's like, I believe I can be healed. I believe the truth of the gospel, that God is at work, and Jesus is who he is. He says he is, so I believe that I can have my life changed. He believed what Paul was saying was true, so he acted on it. He responded. He sprang to his feet. Here's something that's so important. If we really believe the gospel's true, you know what our default to God is always? Yes. It's not No. See, that's when you know you believe the gospel. You believe who Jesus is. Because anytime he comes knocking on your door, you never say no. Your default is yes. Now, I know there's boundaries and there's, you have to make sure there's margins in your life. And I get all of that. But I don't think that's where we're struggling. I think we're struggling with, we have so many other things when we feel a prompting of God saying, hey, this is something you should jump into. Like even like pray see me. I know there's tension in everybody's schedule. I don't have time. You don't have time to pray. Remember the reason that so much happened in the book of Acts is because the church prayed. They prayed. But this tension that we feel, when God comes knocking, is your default yes. It should be. So I'll brag on him this week because he's not, not here, but they were here last week. If you were here, we, we prayed for Mike and Kathleen Jackson as they get ready to make their transition 
to Michigan. And I'll tell you, I love that couple and I love Mike. Because if any of you know Mike, Mike's default is yes. It is. And I, I look at Mike's life, I couldn't be Mike. I couldn't. I'll tell you why. You know what time that guy leaves, would leave his house every morning to work? About four in the morning, every morning. He'd work a good 10 to 12 hour shift, and then we'd get off, you know, he was involved in the youth on Wednesday night, and that usually would go till at least 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. He also led a group, a conquer group for men dealing with sexual addiction because he felt a deep conviction. He also was one of our primary teachers on Sunday morning because he felt that the next generation or this generation needed to be discipled. So he stepped in. And if, if you've ever prayed with Mike, if you get ever a chance to, when, when you're praying or someone else is praying, listen to what Mike says. He says the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know what he says? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. When I pray with Mike, I could count like a hundred times that he says, yes, Lord. What's Mike's default? Yes, Lord. What if our default was yes? Because we actually believe the gospel is more valuable than anything in my life. So I say yes to things that are uncomfortable, that things that are inconvenient, that things that take up my schedule. Maybe I start eliminating things from my schedule so that the most important thing is the priority on my calendar. Not all the things that I fill it in with. The gospel's true. Second thing, verse 11. The gospel's true. The gospel also is from God. So when we look at this lens that we love the gospel, we believe it's actually from God. Listen to verse 11. It says, when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconia, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. <sighs> Wouldn't you love to share something with somebody or something happened and someone looks at you like, wow, you're a god. I love Paul and Barnes' response. Whoa, whoa, guys. Whoa, whoa. We're just like you. But here, what's the response in Iconium? We are going to kill you. What's the response in Iconium? Which is what? It's just, we're going to sacrifice to you. This is the power of God. This is the good news. They actually, even though their theology is a little skewed, they're seeing the connection between the power of God and the gospel actually being from God. So they're ready to be all in. This whole city's ready to be all in. Why? Because they realize this is from God. This is what's happening here. And this is one of the things I think that we forget. It seems pretty elementary, but sometimes it goes right past us. Do we believe the message and the power of the gospel is from God, and do we eagerly embrace it? I mean, if Jesus walked into the room today, you and I would fall on our face. And anything that came out of his mouth, we would say, absolutely, I'll do it. But, but he doesn't walk into the room today but he still speaks by his Holy Spirit every day. And he speaks through his word every day. What do we do? Do we respond? If this, if this is something from God, if what we just read in these 23 verses is something that God inspired through the Holy Spirit, through human hands 2,000 years ago for us to read today, if this is from God, then it requires a response. Otherwise, we're just ignoring God. If the gospel's true, it requires some kind of response. And this is, again, this is the one, the, thing, the things that is probably one of the most sobering things for me as somebody who's known Jesus almost my entire life. I am the biggest resistance point to the gospel, not the people that don't know Jesus. And that means that Jesus has entrusted me with the gospel for my entire life, and here's the question, what have I done with it? If it's from God, if this thing in human history is proven, which it is, historically, Jesus walked the planet. 
His resurrection is verifiable. Miracles happen all the time. The story of human history is unfolded with, it's the story of God. This is all true. If this is true, then what am I doing with it? Do I just live my life and ignore it? Do I just go on and do my thing? Or do I just get so consumed with myself that, hey, I got grace, I got mercy, I got forgiveness, I got salvation. I'm just going to live a comfortable life until I die and I go to be with Jesus. And pardon the expression, but really the mentality is in the world can go to hell. Now, you and I wouldn't say that, but do we live that way? I'll tell you, one of the scariest passages that Jesus, one of the scariest parables Jesus tells is in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, if you're in DE4, we'll talk about this parable. But this is a scary parable. It's, Jesus tells a story and he says there's a master who's going to take a trip. We call it the parable of the talents. And it's not about money. Hear it. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And he says on his trip, he's going to go on his trip, he entrusts his servants, three of them. You know the story, most likely. He gives five talents to one guy, he gives two to another, and one to a third. And then he walks, and he leaves. And when he comes back, he goes back and says, so, what do you guys, what did you do? The guy who had five comes back with ten. The guy who had two comes back with four. But the one who had one comes back almost proud. I didn't lose it. Here it is, safe and sound. I buried it in the ground and waited until you came back and dug it up and gave it back to you. He said, because I was afraid if I lost it, what you would do. And then the, what's scary is that you think, oh, okay, well, good try, but next time invest it and risk it. And no, Jesus says, let me take that one, and now I'm going to give it to the guy who had five, who now has ten. Now he has more. Why? Because he was fruitful and he invested and risked it so I would have more when I returned. And then he says to the one who played it safe and hung on, what does he say? He calls him wicked. And then he actually ends the parable by using a phrase that's usually referred to as hell, what we would call hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, what? That doesn't make sense. What is Jesus saying? You've been given the gospel. You've been given the truth that majority of the world doesn't even know yet. And when I return, he's not going to ask you for the one talent in return. Oh, I didn't lose it. I got my salvation. He's not going to, he's going to look at it and say, what did you do? What did you do with what you know? Did you risk it all for me so that other people might know me? Because here's the beauty. If you risk it all and you lose everything, including your life, it's a win. That's the, that's the thing that separates us from the world. If we die, we gain. That means we cannot lose. But we don't believe that. We hang on to every ounce of life to the detriment of the gospel. So what are you doing? Here's, this is the bad news of the gospel. You've heard it. You've experienced it. You know it. Now you're accountable for it. It's like, oh, okay, I don't want to hear the gospel today. I, no, it's too late. It's already in. It should ignite us. That's why when we're walking around our city, our hearts should break for our city. When I walk around my neighborhood, my heart breaks for my neighborhood. 
The prayer that we should be praying all the time is, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Please hear me today. I don't want you to walk away and think, man, Pastor John was amped up, too convicting. I felt guilty. I don't like that message. Chuck it. I don't want you to hear that. I don't want that to be what this message is about. What I want you to have is a passion ignited by the Holy Spirit that drives your life. Please don't do anything that Pastor John tells you to do. Do what God tells you to do. Because you won't stand before me someday. You'll stand before him. And you know the good news is? He wants to say this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You risked it all. And then I guarantee when he welcomes you in, you'll walk into the throne room and look around heaven and be able to point to people because you risked it all. They're standing there with Jesus. Nothing's more valuable than that. That's what our life should be about. That's what Jesus calls us to. So the gospel is from God. And then one final point, and then the worship team will, will join us again for one more song. Lovers of the gospel also means, this is the verse 13, is that the gospel is better. The priest of Zeus, says verse 13, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. These were religious people. They just were not focused on who God is. They had their idols and their worship. And so what is their response? We're not going to go sacrifice to Zeus. We're going to sacrifice to this God. Why? Because this God's better. They even saw it. They saw that the gospel that they were experiencing, the truth. In fact, what's great is, did you see that Paul shifts right into a gospel message that doesn't reference any of Jewish history? He just says, oh, by the way, you know, the rains and the fruit and all that stuff, that's all from God. God's been talking to you and speaking to you all your entire life. And now he's here because he's come in the form of Jesus to you. And now they're ready to sacrifice. Why? Because the gospel's better. And that's the question for us. Is the gospel better? Or is there a life that we've embraced that if we were honest with ourselves, nah, this is better. This way of life is better. Now, see, this is the tension for us because we live in a world where there is, there is a competitive race for our attention and our hearts. In a lot of other parts of the world, the gospel's, gospel's obviously better. But not when you have money and comfort and safety and routine and all the things that we have. Man, the gospel used to be up here. And I don't know. Maybe it's closer to here now. But man, when you're desperate and you're broken and you need salvation, the gospel is better. And that's what's going on in this passage. The gospel has become better to them. Again, in fact, worship team, you can come and join me. We're going to go into a song in a minute. But I wanted to just to take a few moments to talk about couple really important things. Going back to that, that comparison, I started with these two rich guys that Jesus encountered. What was the difference between the rich young man and Zacchaeus? It's pretty obvious. Zacchaeus thought Jesus was better. He thought what Jesus was offering was better than his tax collecting job. Most likely, Zacchaeus was the most wealthy person in his community. And what's crazy is he had legal grounds to steal from people. I mean, nobody looking over his shoulder, no accountability. I mean, he could take all he wants to take. He could have all the money he ever wanted. And yet Jesus walks in and he says, none of it's worth that. None of it is worth what Jesus can offer me. Then a rich young ruler who you could tell in his mind, he's like, I got the life I want. I got the money. In fact, I'm moral. 
I'm religious. I got the law down. And then he recites. In fact, Jesus actually even affirms him. He says, yeah, you got it. You got the law, but man, you still lack one major thing. Your money is your idol. Your comfort is your God. And your religiousness has kept you from embracing the gospel. One walks away sad, one walks away giving his money away in joy. I want to be Zacchaeus. I want the gospel to be better in my life. Which means whatever comes to compete against the gospel never wins. Because Jesus does. A couple weeks ago I mentioned something that's really, really important that I've, I've noticed in people's lives and I've seen how people get ignited and the Holy Spirit works in their life. And, and that is really understanding the difference between your career and your calling. If you have said yes to Jesus, you have a calling on your life. Everybody says when you're in ministry, which means you end up being a pastor or you do something vocationally that's tied to ministry, that you're called as though everybody else isn't called. That's not biblical. You were called. You were not only called for salvation, you were called for God's purpose in your life. And God's purpose in your life is always tied to his mission. It always is. You may be a doctor or an attorney or a firefighter or a secretary or a nurse or a teacher, and that's great, but those are your, those are your careers. And God wants you to be the best at those things. But there's a calling, a calling that goes above that because the calling is who you are. The calling is what God's asked you to sacrifice in your life. That Your calling is giving your life away to other people so that they might experience the gospel and hear the gospel through your life. That's your calling. It's shaping a young child who's trying to find and navigate in a broken home what the gospel looks like. It's caring for somebody in a laundromat or in Skid Row or, or a homeless person in the streets. It's praying for your neighbor who's going through difficulties in your life. Those things form callings in our life then we know, God, this is what you called me to do. Yeah, this is my career, but my career pays my bills, but my calling meets my passion. I have loved watching people who I rarely get to see this, but there's people in our church and I love it. I'm not gonna call people out, but man, they're living out their calling and their job is secondary, but they do great at their job. But that job is just fuel for ministry. Remember Paul? He was a tent maker. That was his career. He was good at making tents. Why? So he could fund himself for mission. That's what his life was about. How does your career and your calling work? God has a call on your life. Are you living out your calling? Have you found your calling? Which, by the way, majority of us, our calling is not just to do something in the church. Our calling could be in the church, and it always is outside the church because God has called us into the world. So in a moment, we're going to go into a song that's called Take My Life. All of me. So a song is probably older and you, it's, maybe you're familiar with it. But it's a call to follow Jesus. And again, please don't respond to Pastor John. This is why I asked us to pray at the beginning. Pray. Respond to the Holy Spirit, bringing that conviction in your life that says there's more. There's more that he has for me. There's more that he wants to do through, for, through me. There's other things he's calling me to. And what I'm going to do is when we go into this song, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to encourage you. If you're physically able, the, the front's open. We even thought about the comfort of your knees and provided a carpet on the concrete floor. But maybe physically you can't get to the front, that's okay. But I'm gonna ask you, it, whatever is for you, and please hear me, I'm not trying to manipulate a response, 
But whatever posture you need to take physically that is a sign before God that I'm going to surrender, then you do it. If it's getting on your knees where you are, if it's coming to the front, then make that response. That the gospel is more valuable than anything in your life. And now I'm going to respond to what is God calling me to. And we look through the lens of the lovers of the gospel, not the haters. So that we're not that group of people that responds in resistance to the gospel, but we actually embrace the gospel. Here's the danger of the gospel. When you get just enough of it, not to kill you, but enough of it to make you resistant to it. That's called inoculation. Sometimes I found myself inoculated to the gospel. See, when you get inoculation, what do you, you get just enough to make you sick, but not enough to kill you. The gospel has to, you have to get enough of the gospel to kill your old self. So you can die and rise to the life that Jesus has for you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want your will. We want the truth. Lord, I even, if you're, I'm going to interrupt my prayer. If you're here today and you're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? If you don't know who Jesus is, today's the day he wants you to know. He, you have heard the gospel today, and he's calling you maybe for the first time to respond to him. Because he's saying the life he has for you is not easy. The life he has for you is not comfortable. But the life he has to you has for you is complete satisfaction. And it is contentment. And it is joy that you've never experienced before. Because he is asking you to lay down your sin and your life and everything that you thought would make you happy. And lay it down so that you could follow him. If that's you, then I'm going to pray for you as well, that you would give your life to Jesus. But for the rest of us, we're asking that once again, you would renew your commitment to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is everything to me. So Jesus, would you come and give us the conviction of your spirit to live lives out that are completely surrendered to you so that, Lord, we don't live the same life every week, week in and week out. But our lives are different. Our lives are challenging. Our lives are filled with encounters with people. Our lives are filled with you speaking through your spirit and calling us to places to reach people, to care for people, to disciple people, to love people like you love people. Holy Spirit, would you come now and accomplish your purpose in us as we surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.